Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For a lot of the pandemic, Americans looked over at Europe with a degree of envy. The Europeans had evidence-based policy, they had a lockdown system that was more rigorous and more serious, and they had, in, in many cases, lower deaths per capita and less social pain caused by the virus. But recently, the tables have started turning. As the United States has accelerated its vaccine campaign, becoming one of the leaders in the world alongside the United Kingdom, which obviously recently left the EU, EU member states are being left behind. Their vaccine rates are low. They are having problems with administering the vaccines they have, including a recent controversy over the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has become more and more controversial despite there being limited evidence of problems with it, and an underlying bubbling issue of vaccine skepticism. All of these are raising questions about the extent to which the European Union's political model is effectively equipped to deal with rapid problems like the coronavirus versus more nimble systems, even if they produce worse outcomes that you saw in the U.S. and the EU. We're going to talk over all of these complex issues today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and noted EU citizen Alex Ward. <laughs> Hi. Just outing me out already off the top. Look, I think that that our listeners deserve to know that you have you have a stake in this conversation. So you're gonna you're gonna hack for Europe over the so, course of this. Am I just gonna pigeonhole as like the EU defender somehow, even though I'm probably uh, very critical? <laughs> no, that was the joke. I know, I know from I know. prep that you're gonna you're gonna go after uh, the EU system on this front. But uh, I thought people should know that at least it's coming from a place of love. Gotcha. I just, and I think this now means legally. I have to start every sentence with "as a European." Correct. Yes, you do. <laughs> in that voice, preferably. Yes. Ideally, uh, <laughs> Europe you gotta you, you gotta like really play up any latent Spanish accent that you have. Um, right, take a nap in the middle of the conversation. Well. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh my god, I didn't mean, I didn't want to go into stereotype territory. I was just like, you know, you can do the accent, but all right. <laughs> no, no. Spain recently is the only country that's like we're gonna do a four day work week and we're still gonna have our siesta. So I think it's it's merited in this in this last week. I want a four day work week. Yeah, uh, we announced that somebody dropped a, a link to that in Slack in our uh, our work chat, and uh, I promptly announced that the Vox Foreign Pods uh, Spain Bureau was going to be opening shortly, and we would all be moving there, which is sadly not true. But four-day work week, man, living the dream. So why don't we start our conversation about Europe with the AstraZeneca situation? Uh, so as we're recording this, uh, the EU's regulatory body that makes decisions about vaccine safety is currently on the brink of an announcement about the risks associated with AstraZeneca. Uh, but in the past few weeks, at the sub-EU level, the national level, a number of different countries have suspended use of AstraZeneca's vaccine, right? And this relates to concerns about blood clots, right, uh, Alex? That's right. So very simply put, 
this vaccine, which is an, an Anglo-Swedish you know, concoction from the company AstraZeneca, ha- is a pretty big deal for Europe. And the reason it's a big deal is because, one, it was you know, made there. Two, it is one of the four, I believe, that have been accepted throughout the continent. And it's really somewhat easy to use, right? It is doesn't require big chilling. It can just very simply be brought around and even you know, countries that don't have a lot of infrastructure to keep vaccines in like a fridge for a long period of time, like can use it. So it's extremely accessible and super helpful. The reason there's a controversy now is that in effect, there have been these severe blood clots, a lot of them in the brain, some of them elsewhere, and some that have led to deaths after the vaccine was administered. And what some of the scientists are saying, some in Germany, some in Norway, some elsewhere, is that the rates of these blood clots after vaccination are higher than expected. Even though millions of shots have been administered, what these, you know, analysts and scientists are seeing is like, well, there has been an uptick in these incidents. And so Germany, Norway, again, others were just like, we're going to put a pause here. We're going to stop for a moment and let this European agency look at what's going on before we, you know, move forward with it. And a bunch of other countries stopped as well. Uh, you know, the Spains, the Frances, the Italys, elsewhere, they were just like, hey, we also want to put a pause on using AstraZeneca. Now, you can look at this in effect two ways, maybe a third, but I'm going to go with two. One is, this is a good idea. Like, if you're going to be vaccinating a bunch of people, you want to make sure that it's safe. It isn't causing, you know, other symptoms or effects that could lead to a worse situation. That That's one way to look at it. The other one is, hey, there is a pandemic and there are variants that are rapidly going through the continent and we all need to be vaccinated. And even though there are these incidents and we still do not know whether they were caused by the vaccine or exacerbated other medical issues or whatever, right? It's 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 not a causal link at this moment. As, as far as we know, you're going like, hey, these incidents are horrible. We feel bad, but we all need to still be taking these vaccines. And any delay in people getting you know jabbed, in effect, will make the pandemic worse. So that is the controversy at this moment with this AstraZeneca vaccine, and it's really roiling the continent. Hopefully within a few hours, uh, that European agency will decide, hey, you know, one way or the other, all indications for the moment are they will decide AstraZeneca is fine, as a bunch of European scientists and officials are saying. And you even have like the Francis prime minister be like, I will be the first one to get AstraZeneca again after they say it's good to go. So this is the debate at the moment, and it's um, a really big one because Europe is struggling at the moment in, in a major way uh, with vaccinating people and just the coronavirus itself. Yeah, I think it's important to emphasize just how many countries have actually stopped using it. It's a lot. So like you said, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, Ireland, Netherlands, even as far away as Thailand. So countries outside of Europe are looking at this, you know, seeing this pattern and getting really worried. On the other side of it, the numbers are also really small. We're talking about, you know, in the dozens of people who have experienced this effect of this kind of widespread blood clots and internal bleeding. It's not nothing, right? It's a very serious condition that these people are experiencing. Most of them have also just been like people who were presumed to be otherwise healthy, didn't have, you know, any kind of underlying health conditions that the the doctors were aware of. So that's also part of the concern here, right, is that these are the same kind of people who may not have actually had potentially life-threatening COVID reactions if they had gotten COVID. So that's kind of the concern here, right, is that you also don't want people who could potentially otherwise survive COVID getting a vaccine that, you know, and if this causes that reaction dying, right? So it's a very serious reaction. I think to kind of understand, it's been talked about in the media a lot as blood clots. um, And there have been some comparisons made to things like birth control, which can also cause a higher risk of blood clots in in people who take it. 
Um, but I think it's a little bit more complicated. There's a really great piece, and we'll link to it in the show notes from Science Magazine, kind of really getting into the the details of it. But again, we're talking really small numbers. And also, this didn't show up during the tests, right? D- during the the trial phases. So I think that's also important to note. There's also some concern that this may just be like one batch, like a specific batch of the AstraZeneca vaccine rather than the vaccine itself. So some countries haven't delayed, like they haven't stopped all of their vaccinations. Uh, A couple of countries have decided to just stop like a certain batch and hold it or or get rid of it. So I think it's important to kind of understand the numbers here. Um, So we're talking a really small number of cases, but millions of people in countries potentially not getting vaccinated for a while because this is pausing. And so that's like the really big concern, right, is that because of, you know, this small number of cases, it kind of has the appearance that people are panicking, right, and that countries are panicking and and shutting this down. Um, I think, you know, there's a good case to be made that it's out of an out of an abundance of caution. I don't think anybody is doing this lightly. I think all the health experts are probably pretty aware of how serious the pandemic is. So, you know, I I think it's important to kind of understand that part too. These issues are are really complicated, right? So on the one hand, you know, it seems kind of ridiculous given the rarity of these side effects, even though they are very deadly and we we don't know if they're linked to the vaccines. We're waiting to hear again and we'll update you uh, as soon as we find out what's going on with this EU decision. But we, we don't know if they're linked at this point to the AstraZeneca vaccine. You'd think that given the proven risks of the pandemic, which again, as Jen pointed out, these regulators are aware of, they wouldn't think about it too much. But part of the underlying concern here is that Europe has a history, not only with the AstraZeneca vaccine that preceded the current round of controversies, but with vaccines more broadly. So, uh, I'll start, I guess, with the, the history with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So there's there's a whole complex series of problems that came in with the clinical trials of this vaccine, owing largely to the fact that there were some manufacturing issues, and so they had to delay certain treatments in their vaccination process. But one thing that was that was notable is that they they had a sort of incomplete data for the critical over sixty five demographic early on. A lot of European regulators, even before the current round of blood clot-related concerns, had suspended the use of AstraZeneca temporarily for over 65 patients, which already created a perception. This was widely covered in the German media. The French president said he was skeptical of the efficacy of the vaccine for people over 65. And so they there was already this perception that this was like a second-class or worse vaccine that you shouldn't want to begin with. And so uptake rates were low to begin with. Now, it turns out that they, it actually is quite effective for people over 65, to be clear. It's just that the data was a little bit iffy, and the European governments and regulators kind of jumped to conclusions before the evidence really was in. But this leads to, to the second problem, which is that there is a broader underlying hesitancy among the European population about vaccines. So a a poll conducted um, the past few years found that France was the most vaccine-hesitant country on the planet, not just in Europe, but like of all countries on Earth. French people were the most skeptical of taking vaccines. And in general, Europe had much higher rates of vaccination hesitancy for non-COVID vaccines than most other regions on Earth. Um, So the best explanation I've heard of this is it's kind of a development paradox. So in poorer countries or developing countries, you have like real concrete experience of vaccines curing horrifying diseases that were endemic, and so people are are less afraid of the side effects. Whereas 
in, in developed countries, people are so used to vaccines that they've started forgetting what they do, and they start to become more willing to, to believe there might be something wrong with them. Uh, and so that effect means that the EU regulators are in a difficult place, right? On the one hand, they don't want to play into this because everybody needs to get vaccinated, right? And it's really, really, really important to prevent the spread of the disease and, and other waves, like Europe is entering a third wave right now. Uh, on the other hand, if there are side effects associated with AstraZeneca, like these are these are real, these blood clots, and they're not some kind of statistical artifact or some some misidentification in the data, and they start administering to them and people start dying, and that comes out after the vaccine was approved for use, then you're likely to see an exponential increase in vaccine hesitancy for all of these different vaccines. Uh, people won't trust them. And so you have to be cautious to a degree. And they're trying to thread that needle. Like, I understand what they're doing. It still seems to me to be a, a really poor decision on the merits. And again, we'll, we'll know more when we find out what's going on. But my my guess is even if they find a link to the blood clotting problem, which is serious, I don't want to underplay it, even if they find a link, they'll probably recommend that given how dangerous COVID is, people still get the vaccines. That would be my guess as to what the the European medicines agency is going to do if they find a link. But again, we'll find that out relatively shortly. I think all that's right. But I perhaps to, uh, to, to be the skunk at the garden party here, like the decisions to stop taking AstraZeneca or at least put a pause on it for a moment were not done as carefully, I think, as both of you have laid out. Like, of course, there were German scientists and others who said, hey, there's a statistical anomaly here. Can we take a second to look at it? And yes, there are leaders who are who are thinking about, well, how do we, you know, thread the needle of messaging, there might be an issue and also you need to take it. But that isn't really the consideration from a lot of these countries. The consideration is 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 politics for the sake of European politics. I think it's important to note for those who don't follow the EU as closely, and, and you shouldn't because it's the cutting edge of politics in an extraordinarily boring way, um, to, to quote Eddie Azard, my, my favorite stand-up, like there's a couple of power brokers in the EU, right? Germany and France. And when they do something, a bunch of other countries follow. Because even though Italy and Spain and Denmark and all these other nations are powerful and have their own pull, they kind of look to those two countries and especially Germany for, for action and for leadership. And of course, the more, you know, the, the weaker countries on, on Europe's periphery and those with, with less money um, just kind of have to follow along. So when Germany made the decision and, and sort of said, hey, there might be an issue here, other European leaders didn't want to look like they were, you know, more cavalier with their public, that they, that they valued their lives less. And so th I don't think it's a surprise that there was sort of a domino effect here. Like Germany fell, then a bunch of other big nations fell, and then, you know, everyone just kind of went, okay, well, let's just wait until Europe weighs in. And so I I fear, and I, and I think this is true, that despite the real scientific issues here, what really led to this pause, and I think one that will be scientifically damaging down the line, was politics. And it's and it's endemic in what's going on with Europe because at its core, even though we talk about the European Union, 27 nations, you know, working together, it really is 27 individual nations that occasionally have to be like corralled together in a lowest common denominator way. Uh, and, you know, Brexit is, is the, the most obvious example of a country that went way too much in its own way and, and to the point that it left. And so I, I also don't want to give off an impression here that like this was an, a well-considered pan-European program on like, let's just put a pause. This was panic <laughs> um, caused by the most powerful 
um, nation who looked at data again. I'm not saying they, they this is you know out of nowhere, but like looked at data, said let's take a pause, and then every you know most other European nations were like, oh, I guess we have to also do this too to look good. Um, I'll talk about this more later for sure, but. Um, this notion of like European solidarity and the way that that the EU as a whole went to get vaccines has also exacerbated this problem because there's a feeling on the continent, if you are an EU member, that you have to work in tandem constantly, that you have to be together and that you have to make actions together. Um, and if you don't, you're sort of out of the club or, you know, the the there's a pull um, to, to make you act in unison. And so I feel like the, the EU's, you know, core here, the, the whole point of working in tandem, working in solidarity, working together is working against the interests of individual member states, uh, as they see it. Yeah. And I know we're going to dig into that a lot more in the second half of the show and really talk about what all of this, the pandemic and, and everything could mean for the future of the EU as a political entity and as a political project. But there's one thing I also want to kind of throw in here that we haven't talked about with AstraZeneca. And that's just the fact that there's also just a lot of anger in the EU towards AstraZeneca right now, yeah. unrelated to the actual efficacy or side effects or anything, but about production. There's been a fight for several months going on now with basically at a certain point, uh, I think around January, AstraZeneca essentially told the EU, uh, hey, we're probably not going to be able to fulfill the full amount of your order like we said we would. We're only going to give you a, a portion of what we said we'd be able to give you by X date. Uh, sorry about that. And EU was like, wait, what? No, we we had an agreement. What do you mean? You have to give us our vaccines. And then they looked and said, wait a minute, how come you're still fulfilling all the orders to the UK? How come you're giving them their full order, but you're, you know, stiffing us on our order? And so it started this huge fight between the EU and the UK and AstraZeneca. And so there's a lot of anger that, you know, it, it brought up issues around Brexit and all of that kind of lingering tension. The company was kind of caught in the middle and they were saying like, look, you know, we made this deal with them first uh, and, you know, we're trying to just do what we can. And then the EU basically got really mad and said, fine, we're going to tell our countries it's okay to block exports of vaccines to other countries. So we're not going to let, you know, if, if we don't have enough for our population, we'll let, say, Germany say, I'm sorry, no, but any that are made on our soil, which... The AstraZeneca vaccine is made in Europe. We're not going to let them export it. So there's this whole fight, and that's still going on. So I think that's also played into that. You know, the, the AstraZeneca kind of fight. AstraZeneca as a company has come to represent things beyond what the actual vaccine is in the minds of a lot of European officials who are very angry about how this has played out. So I, I think that's an important kind of element to what's going on here that we shouldn't overlook. Jen, that speaks to, I think, the broader concerns about the EU's vaccination rollout, right? Because this AstraZeneca stuff, it's a really big deal and, and could be a significant delay in the European uh, vaccine rollout. But the problem is it's coming after months of an already extremely, extremely bad rollout. If you look at a chart at the Invaluable Our World and Data website, which does a really good job of tracking vaccination rates, like, and you, you sort of subdivide by, by wealthy countries— and you see uh, two countries, Israel and the UAE, really pulling ahead. Israel is by far the highest. And then you see an, another little cluster with Chile and the United States and the UK. And then all the European countries are clustered way below those two, right? All the EU countries, I should say, specifically. Uh, it's really striking how much slower the rollout in those countries has been. There are a series of complex reasons why the EU has been so slow 
on vaccine rollout. There's a really good piece in Politico EU that was published in January that, I, that I'd recommend you reading that details the complex story here. Right, but part of it relates to the stuff about uh, vaccine production and negotiations with corporations that Jen was just hinting at. To to make a complex story a little simple, uh, and I'm sure you two can add some complexity to it, the EU wanted to negotiate as a block, um, as all of the different countries uh, pooling their purchasing power to negotiate better with these corporations. And by negotiate better, I mean to get provisions that would not indemnify corporations in the event that their vaccines cause side effects. So they could be sued, uh, which is not the case in the United States, and to get uh, lower rates on the the price of each vaccine itself. Uh, and they, they succeeded at doing that, incidentally. They got some of the lawsuit protections they wanted, and they got – they're paying less, Europe as a block, per dose than the U.S. or Israel is. Those two countries in particular are, are paying a lot of money so they can get the vaccines faster. But that's the problem, right? So Europe made a decision to pool its purchasing power. And it made a decision to try to distribute those vaccines uh, relatively equitably throughout the member states. Uh, and that slowed down their ability to vaccinate in any one country. So it's great for Bulgaria that they have this deal because Bulgaria has much less purchasing power. But it's not so good for France or Germany, which if it just struck deals on, on its own, uh, would be able to vaccinate their populations much faster. And so the reason why Europe as a whole is all clustered together in this lower tier owes to its negotiating strategy, both its its concern about paying for the vaccines and its concern about equity and efficacy throughout the EU that led to it falling behind uh, the United States and UK and, and a few other rich countries. Yeah. And, you know, the point about Germany, for instance, you know, for it not being as good for Germany, right, because they have the purchasing power that if they had wanted to do it on their own, they probably would have had vaccines a lot faster. Um, but they didn't. They decided to wait and go with the EU plan, except that eventually Germany kind of got impatient and said, yeah, this isn't really working for us. And they tried to go make a side deal and basically came out and announced back in January that they were going to be receiving something like, you know, 60 million doses from their EU contracts, but an additional 30 million from bilateral contracts. So they were going to be getting an extra 30 million doses, basically, of the, this was of the, the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine, not AstraZeneca. But they came out and said that. They were like, yeah, sorry, we're just going to get more for our own country. Uh, sorry about that. And it was kind of funny the way the EU responded, right? Because this is literally pretty directly in contradiction of the entire point of what the EU is trying to do and the entire agreement they had all made. And EU commission president came out and basically, you know, said that you can't sign separate deals. This is legally binding. We all agree that there are no parallel negotiations. And then Germany did it anyway. And the commission kind of looked at it and came out and said, oh, um, well, this, this doesn't actually, uh, you know, breach the agreement, it, this, you know, this is, this was fine. This didn't actually violate it. It literally did. Like, there's no real way to get around that fact that Germany just went around and said, we're going to do it ourselves. It's not that complicated to figure out. But the European Commission basically refused to even acknowledge that it happened and just kind of ignored it and swept it under the rug. And I think that's really important. And again, we'll talk about this more about, you know, how important this symbol of solidarity was to the EU both in terms of the actual vaccine process, but also in terms of what it represented for Europe and for the European project. And so they literally just ignored it. And they're like, no, that didn't happen. What are you talking about? It's fine. 
You're telling me the European Commission, led by Ursula von der Leyen, Angela Merkel's former defense minister, looked the other way when Germany did a thing? Wow. <laughs> no, stunning, right? <laughs> Look, I, I'll put a bumper sticker on this. The EU as a whole prioritized price or lower prices, and the US and UK and others sort of individually, but also if we were to put them in a, in a block, prioritize speed. Now, there are pros and cons to this. One, the, the pros, I guess, are, as Zach also laid out, are like, yeah, it costs less per drug. That's good. And on top of that, a lot of these drug makers were basically told, like, if things go wrong down the line, like, we can hold you responsible. It is possible that if down the line we all find that there are long-term effects with these drugs, well, the EU is actually going to be in a better position than the U.S. to be like, hey, drug makers, this is on you, as opposed to, you know, pharmaceutical companies that, that are producing vaccines in the U.S. They can put their hands up and go, not us. Like, you gave us, you know, you gave us uh, immunity in effect. No pun intended, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it is pretty funny to talk about immunity in the legal context and the vaccine context, and then yeah. roll them all into one. It just—I appreciate—I appreciate, it I appreciate yeah. the unintentional pun. It worked yeah. very nicely, Alex. Thank you. So that so that is a potential pro. The con, of course, is what we've been talking about, which is a slower rollout. And when you have the EU here, especially struggling with variants like the British variant, which is is, is going through a lot of Europe, it's part of the reason why it looks like there's going to be a third, if not you know, if there isn't already a third wave in, in European cases. Like, this is exactly when you need to be vaccinating people. Um, and so, like, you're just seeing individual countries, like the U.S. one was called Operation Warp Speed. Like, just get vaccines yeah. out there. Just Not put exactly them out. subtle. <laughs> right. Just just get them out. Just throw them at people. <laughs> and if it and hopefully they land in arms. Um, but, and, and in the EU, it was just like, well, we're going to take <laughs> Sorry, our time. I just picture them throwing them like darts and just hoping it hits somebody's shoulder. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that was the, that was yeah, the image I was going for. It's a very striking visual image that is slightly <laughs> hilarious. Um, and of course, the EU did this more deliberative approach. It is quite literally, you know, two, it is a polar opposite idea here. Um, the, what I find just, I find, I think it's completely worth criticizing the EU for is, you know, for the, it's a short-term calculation. Like, price? Are you kidding me? Like, you spent $9 billion, $900 billion effectively on, like, a coronavirus e economics bill. You didn't want to spend a couple billion more on just getting vaccines out to people. This notion of saving per drug, I find ridiculous. The immunity thing for, like, being able to go after pharmaceutical companies down the line, I see as a worthwhile consideration. But I'm not sure it was worth the, the, the lost time. And I will make this extremely long story short, but I think what happened here in part outside of the solidarity thing, which we'll talk about, is the EU as a whole really uh, likes regulating industries um, <laughs> and and not like just for the sake of regulating. There's there's tons of historical reasons here, including, you know, world wars and important uh, industries to, to certain European countries. But it is like the EU as a whole, it cares very deeply that, you know, many industries, pharma, food, whatever, needs to be regulated in order to ensure the absolute safety of the consumer. Like that is tops almost across the board. So it doesn't surprise me that in this situation, that would be top of mind for e for the EU. And it was hard to get out of that mindset for something that really is a race. And whereas, you know, countries like the US, for example, and others were just like, yeah, we do regulate like, but you know, that's just not top of mind here, whereas it was for the Europeans. Two things to add. I think that's totally right. Um, the first is that we haven't mentioned this, but like in the US, the EU is, is mostly paying for all of the vaccines for its citizens, right? People are right, not, right. you don't have to pay to go get the shot at, just as in the US, which if you're doing that for all of Europe, <laughs> essentially, uh, you know, the whole EU, I understand why they could see that cost might be something they want to pay attention to. 
to be fair, yes, of course they have the money. But at the same time, I, I do understand that they are paying for it. So I think that's important to note. The second thing, just to kind of underline the speed issue, there were countries like the U.S. who really valued speed. And Israel, I think, is an even more interesting case there, because not only did they say, we'll give you basically whatever you want, like we'll, we'll pay, you know, through the nose, essentially, for these vaccines, just get them to us, get them to us first. We need to vaccinate our population. But they also threw in an extra sweetener because they were so interested in like getting this done. And it's part of why they succeeded in getting their population vaccinated so quickly. And they essentially said, look, we have this healthcare system. And our colleague, Jen Kirby, who worldly listeners know, she did a really fantastic piece on this. Definitely recommend checking it out. But basically, they have this kind of completely digitized healthcare system that everyone in the country is a part of. And they threw that into the vaccine manufacturers and they're like, hey, we'll totally just give you all of this data. Like, you can just have it for free. Like, it's fine. Like, just please give us your vaccine. So there's another reason why Israel was able to get it, right? So if you compare that approach where they were like throwing in sweeteners, like just what do you want? Just name your price versus the EU, which was like, hang on, let's talk about this. Let's haggle for prices. It really explains, you know, and it seems like, okay, how much longer did it really take? But if you remember when this was happening, this has all happened extremely fast, right? I mean, in you know November, we were first talking about there might be vaccines that are happening. That's exciting. And now here we are, you know, in mid-March and millions of people have been vaccinated. So time really was of the essence. And I think that's where the EU, you know, made their strategic calculation. And a lot of people are not happy about how it has worked out. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to pick up on that thread that Jed and Alex was just hinting at about what this says about the European project and political model writ large. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. During the break, we experienced uh, some some health problems of our own when Jen somehow got some coffee into her nose. It's uh, it's not clear exactly how this happened. But You'll never it, uh, prove it. Yeah, it, it amused all of us during the break. And <laughs> it's actually on now, tape, now, so. Yeah. Okay, we, so, <laughs> fair enough. Tape. You it's may true. be able to prove it. <laughs> it's, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. Lordy, we'll I see. hope there are tapes. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I just went up my nose. We're fine. Okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. All right. Now with those Trump era references and Jen's coffee snorting out of the way, uh, we, we want to talk about the sort of broader implications of the EU's vaccine problems. Because the way that a system performs in a crisis uh, is 
an important indicator of how well the system is functioning in general and how well it's set up, and as well as the flaws and the defects and, and the benefits of the system under normal circumstances. And there's a lot to recommend the European approach to the COVID crisis writ large, right? There's a reason why so many Americans were looking jealously at Europe during what, what I would see as like the middle stage of the pandemic, right? When both the United States and the European Union had a lot of cases, Europe had uh, more stringent, on the whole, again, there are individual exceptions like Sweden and Europe, but on the whole, stringent and consistent lockdown policies. They were more serious about masking than the U.S. was in a lot of places. And uh, the result is that you had a much better system of mitigation in the EU uh, when, when infection rates were, were really high and vaccines were not available. But now, obviously, as we've been talking about, elements of the European system, a preoccupation with collective action, regulation, and solidarity have really slowed down vaccine distribution and hurt some countries, especially large and, and high-income ones, disproportionately. And the result is that the United States now is a much better place to be than, than Europe is, uh, with some caveats, again, because for some states maybe opening up before vaccine rates are too high. This is all very complicated. My point is, uh, to, to wrap up a even-handed and long diatribe, it seems like we are seeing some of the the right leaning critiques of the European Union that you've heard from uh, Euroskeptics and Brexiteers that it's too bureaucratic, it's too slow, uh, it is too dependent on these undemocratic institutions that don't always make good decisions. It seems like a lot of those critiques are looking more justified after the pandemic than they may have looked to a lot of people beforehand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, Alex, this is where go. I get to go. This is where I get to go as a European. No, um, <laughs> also, I still have coffee up my nose, so please take it away. Sure. I think the greatest indictment of sort of the EU in this moment is that actually it worked as intended, right? <laughs> Brussels, the power center of Europe, strong-armed 27 member states that didn't really want to move in unison to move in unison, and it led into this play and this bet on slow-moving, low-price, and then keeping pharmaceutical companies accountable down the line scheme. Um, it worked. Like, this is, the, it's not like there was a failure here. The plan is in play. This is the plan. Um, again, as we mentioned before, it could pan out down the line, um, especially if there are problems with the vaccines. But like, this was the European project. This was, we all move together as one block. We use our combined power to strong arm these pharmaceutical companies to lower the prices. And then we will as a block, distributed equally or equitably, however, throughout um, the EU. Like, there's no there's no process failure here. This was the process. This was the intended EU-designed process. So it's reaping what it sowed. Now, the, the, to the critiques, this was always the number one argument about the EU is like, you know, you can't get, you can't herd these many cats. You can't get 27 member states to sort of move quickly. This is what happens when you're in a big block. Um, and for those saying, well, the United States has 50 states. Yeah, they move individually, guys. It's a different thing. This is what <laughs> this is the difference with the EU is that like, even though they are 27 individual states in these moments, when the EU decides like we're moving as one, they kind of move as one. And this is, this is why I always think you see a, a big backlash, especially from Euroskeptics is like, in every crisis and in every one of these situations, the EU more and more looks like, not is, but looks like one country. And that has been the trend. And so you're still seeing sort of the backlash to it. And this is just the greatest example. So look, it's no surprise to me that 
you know, I've been talking to friends in Germany and Spain and elsewhere where I'm going like, so how do you feel? Like you guys were doing pretty well early on and, and now it's looking pretty bad. And they've basically said in general, two things to me, they go one, well, remember Europe got hit hard really early. And so we kind of dealt with it before you guys did. And so that when you in the U S got hit, it looked like we were doing better, but really our timeline was just sort of, you know, earlier. Um, and then two is like, yeah, of course we're not getting vaccines because the EU is in charge. My government isn't in charge. Um, like that's the general sentiment, even from left-leaning folks, even from European like friendly folks, because this is what this is the deal you make. You make you become a bigger block, a more powerful block, you know, one with more people and more money than the United States. But you move slower in times of crisis and you move slower on bigger issues, whether it's refugees or, or pandemics or whatever. That is the trade-off. So yeah, like I, I, I don't think there's an EU failure here. I think this is an EU success because this was the process working as intended, and this is just like what was inevitably going to happen. I, I want to challenge that a little bit, right? Because Ooh, I think you're EU fight. Let's go. <laughs> no, I think Alex is right on a lot of the important points here. That's it's not just what I was looking the, for. The specifics. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Jen. I'm not going to like gladiate for you, <sighs> uh, but I will gladiate. Gladiate. I'll Whatever. take it. Gladiate. Not, Let's go. Yeah, Gladiate. I think Gladiate works as a verb. Are you um, not entertained? <laughs> you should be worldly listeners. You should be entertained. Because I'm about to get mad. No, I'm not going to get mad. Do it. I Do just, it. I just, I just think, like, it is not just that the process did this and that it worked in the way that it was supposed to, right? That's certainly some of that is the case, especially in terms of um, the, the distribution issues, right? The fact that Europe is working really hard to... Uh, try to treat Bulgaria and Germany equally. If you're a German, I can see why you'd be mad about that. Uh, if you're a Bulgarian, of course, you're thrilled. But I think when it comes to the price issue, which is, as far as I can tell, the biggest reason why the EU was slow, the price and the immunity concerns, that's not, like, that wasn't handed down by the EU structures, right? It wasn't that there's something intrinsic to the EU that says we have to be concerned about negotiating drug prices down or the European project, Right, it may be part of the ideological makeup of the people who are in the EU, which is an interest in regulation, but it is not intrinsic to the structure itself that they had to take this negotiating tack. It could have been the case that all EU 27 countries got together and they're like, look, we want to get these vaccines fast. We're going to let the vaccine producers have immunity. We're going we're gonna to pay what the United States or what Israel paid and we're going to get the vaccines faster. They could have made that choice, right? This is a contingent decision by EU leadership, not necessarily a direct result of structure. I think that's a really good point. But I'm going to see Alex <laughs> respond. Go. Sure. We, although I think that's being too cute by half. And, and I don't mean to be like sharp there. It's just it is true that the EU as a structure did not necessarily lead to small, smaller price points for the drug. But it is true that the EU, because it is a structure, led to smaller price points by the drug. Because European nations, on the whole, as I was alluding to earlier, care very deeply about regulating certain industries. The pharmaceutical company being one of them. And again, to not go into a long history, but it had to do with surviving a lot of wars. And like there were a bunch of issues with, with drug companies, et cetera. So like, the e because there is an EU, a lot of countries that are very similarly minded about regulating industries have more power to negotiate against those industries. So I, I agree completely. Like the EU by itself being a structure does not lead to that. But in fact, because you have 27 member states working in tandem for a common goal, 
it therefore leads to that same outcome. So I like I can imagine, you know, even most of those nations that we're talking about and the EU individually agree with the same thing. They wouldn't have been able to do the price thing. And so therefore, they probably would have prioritized speed for, for myriad reasons. If the EU weren't a thing, then speed would have still been the what won the day in Europe. It is because they are in the EU, because the EU exists, that they were able to consider even prioritizing a lower price, and they did. Um, I think that should have gotten a lot meaner than it did. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I think the comparison to the United States is actually really fascinating uh, to me as, you know, an American, but also as someone who, you know, I have a family who live in multiple states. I live in a different state than most of my family. Um, and I have a lot of experience because I helped members of my family in a whole bunch of different states make their vaccine appointments. It, through that process, it became abundantly clear just how hugely wildly disparate the systems are and the distribution and the timing and the rollout. Every state made their own decision about, you know, whom to prioritize, which groups to prioritize and when, um, you know, which locations are going to be giving out, you know, vaccinations. How are you going to even just set up, you know, what is the computer system that you're going to set up to register people? I mean, everything like that came down to just individual decisions. And I've tried to register people all over the place. And in some places, it was really easy and pretty seamless. And in others, it was a Kafkaesque nightmare trying to figure out how to do it. And so I think, you know, when it comes to, yes, the United States is doing better in terms of vaccination rates, but that's also looking at the United States as a whole. And when you break it down and look at individual states, there are massive disparities. Some states are doing incredibly well. Some are doing absolutely horribly. Um, and, you know, that comes down to, you know, I, I think, for example, people who don't know, but like in D.C., in the District of Columbia, they basically partway through the vaccine rollout essentially had to scrap their entire system and start over because the computer system just kept crashing and wasn't working. At one point, the CAPTCHA thing where you have to type in the letters literally broke. Like, it was ridiculous. And they decided to scrap that whole thing and then just do a completely new rollout. And so, you know, because there wasn't like one kind of centralized system or one centralized body, like the federal government didn't, you know, tell states how they had to do it. Because of that, there are huge disparities. And I think, you know, the EU, the point of, of the EU beyond the pricing was, I think, equity, right? It was trying to make sure that the countries that didn't have, you know, maybe the greatest infrastructure compared to Germany or France or, you know, Spain or Italy or, and didn't have purchasing power, but that everyone would have kind of a general better access as a block. And I think that in that sense, it may be slower than the U.S. writ large, but in general, there are smaller countries that are getting vaccines in a way that I think you're not seeing in some places in the United States. So I think that's a, a fascinating comparison there. I mean, this is actually, I will shock you. I, I will defend the EU here. Um, and I'm actually, I actually do like the EU, by the way. I just think in moments like this, this is where like, the, the, as, as Zach rightly noted, like the critiques ring true. Um, you, as, as Jen alluded to, like you know, Trump's plan was let the states duke it out. They will fight for PPE. They will fight for vaccines. They will fight for funding, like all that. It was, you know, 50 states plus territories, like just fighting each other. Yeah, and it led to high. It was hungry and led to higher price points on on many items and like a worse overall collective response. That was something that the EU was like trying to avoid, right? I mean, Europe actually, even though it based, if you look at a map, it looks bigger. It's super, super small. 
And these are, you know, multiple countries near each other with integrated industries, with, you know, companies that work all over the place. Like, it would have been a nightmare if those 27 nations plus others were competing with each other for PPE and, and, and all their and vaccines and all their kinds of things. And it is actually a godsend that an EU exists to avoid that kind of catastrophe, and that kind of competition. But this is the problem is like, there, there are no, no perfect solutions here. It's not like, you know, you work either you let oh, you you let it be the Hunger Games or you work in unison and like one is going to be better than the other. They all have their pros and cons. I do think if you had Hunger Games, you would have seen certain nations move ahead and been very good at, you know, their own responses and they probably would have sent vaccines around the continent, but it would have led to an incredibly, you know, unequal and 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 rancorous response. And in the EU, it's slow moving, right? It's, it's hard to move 27 nations as one, um, but it led to at least a cohesive and less rancorous, even though there's a lot of rancor here, but less rancorous response. So the, the, those were really kind of the two options, none of which were perfect. But I think given the two, how the EU did it is probably correct. I would just say that I do feel like if there was a tweak to make in that option, it was the the focus on price and like trying to bring down the cost of the drug, while I think well-intentioned, you know, that just wasn't necessary compared to other things. I think if they had gotten rid of that and sort of just moved as a block to get vaccines out as quickly as possible in an Operation Corp Speed kind of way, I think you would have seen an incredibly successful EU response. And that's where I think the sin is, is, is the focus on price and just making sure the pharmaceutical companies would be you know, held accountable. Well, to make matters a little bit more complicated, right? we spent a lot of time at the beginning of the episode talking about the AstraZeneca problem uh, and like the way in which that has played out. And I think that that... That, that tells us something about this story of it's been good for poorer European countries and worse for richer and bigger ones, right? Because in the, in the AZ situation, Germany and France have been the big problems in terms of undermining interest in this particular vaccine and slowing its rollout, right? You had the French President Macron saying, like, I don't think this is necessarily effective for older French people. And you have the German regulators being the ones who really set the tone for the rest of the EU when they were like, wow, maybe this blood clot thing is a huge problem. So while they might have done better on their own, their hegemonic influence inside the EU is also seriously complicating the rollout in the system that is supposed to benefit other countries, right? So for example, Hungary said uh, AstraZeneca is fine and we're cool with it. This doesn't really affect Hungary's ability to roll it out because the EU commission controls distribution of vaccines. Uh, but it does indicate that Hungary is being, uh, to a degree, affected by the broader German and French skepticism about this vaccine, which is starting to turn around now, maybe, in some cases. But on the whole, right, it, it's not just that it has been good for countries on the European periphery and bad for countries in the European core. It's that countries in the European core have dictated the tone of the response to a degree in ways that both benefit themselves and don't, and in some ways hurt everybody. It's a very, very, very complicated story of the different facets of the EU bumping into each other and creating uh, problems and benefits for member states. Yeah, I want to zoom out just a little bit here and talk about what this means more broadly. You know, something that you you mentioned earlier, Zach, really struck me. I mean, you talked about, you know, this system kind of being under stress 
that's when you really see whether a system works or not, right? When it when a system, be it a government structure, or supranational structure, be it a physical, you know, object, when something is under stress, that's when the cracks start to show, right? And that's when, like, you know, the rubber meets the road and you really see what the, the flaws are and what the benefits are. And I think if you take a look at the pandemic kind of more generally and, and the way the EU has has been impacted by it, the way it has responded, you know, there are issues beyond just vaccines, right? There were issues with travel and borders. There were a lot of fights about, you know, closing borders, right? The whole, one of the huge kind of pillars of the EU is open free movement of people and goods. And if you need to have a lockdown in a specific area or specific country, that closes a border, that becomes a problem, right? And so I think if you put that on top of this, there's an additional kind of challenge to the EU structure of like, well, wait a second, maybe borders actually do matter sometimes. And I think if you put the pandemic on top of things like the migration refugee crisis that we saw a few years ago, it's still ongoing, but it really hit its peak a few years ago. That also was a huge blow to kind of the EU as an idea um, and as a structure. Because a lot of countries were like, wait a second, we don't want the free movement of people when there are refugees coming into one country that's really far away from our borders, but those people end up in our country, right? So there was a huge fight there with countries disagreeing and not wanting to have open borders. And if you go back even further, you had the Eurozone crisis, right? And you had smaller countries uh, like Greece, you know, and you had the the debt crisis and you had bigger countries and wealthier countries like Germany who didn't want to necessarily, you know, bail out these smaller countries for their sins. And I think, you know, the, the concern to me here is that when you take these all in succession, also Brexit, let's not forget that huge blow to the EU as an idea. We should really talk about Brexit on the show. Yeah, we, we didn't really <laughs> mention that. Weird. Yeah, um, real undercover topic. Yeah, yeah. Really obscure. Not, not many people know about it. Um, but I think if you take all of these in succession, you see, you know, a couple of decades, some very serious challenges to the EU as a structure and as an idea. And I think my concern here is that, you know, as someone who I, I think very much sees the benefits of this in terms of, you know, what it was originally designed to do, which was to integrate these countries so closely that essentially they wouldn't go to war again, you know, it kill millions of people in the way that the first, you know, the two world wars did. I think that's a very important project and in that sense has been very successful. And I think my concern is that these successive blows keep kind of bringing up these same kind of issues and you know, whether that is continually weakening the EU to the point that more people decide to leave or, you know, that that some of the, the connective tissue starts to be weakened, um, I think that would be a shame. But I think there's also the flip side where it could strengthen it, right? The, the benefits that we're seeing could also, you know, make them essentially come through, you know, forge stronger um, on the other side. So I think that'll be interesting kind of to watch at a more, you know, I mean, essentially the EU is a huge experiment. Right. In in bringing a bunch of disparate countries together and trying to make them all work together and, and be best buddies, um, you know, countries with vastly different economies and populations and you know strengths and weaknesses economically and militarily and all of that. So I, I think it'll be interesting to kind of watch both as like an experimental project, but also, you know, there are real people's lives at stake here. So I'm glad you put it that way, because actually, despite all my rancor at the beginning and I'm using rancor a lot today, but anyway. I'm actually very bullish on the future of the EU. And and I, everything you said there, Jen, is completely right. All those crises the EU, to be fair, has like muddled along, right? It hasn't really succeeded with, uh, you know, whatever the expression is with colors. 
it hasn't really succeeded with, you know, in, in a grandiose way to the point that you said, ah, now I see why this exists. In fact, it's muddled along at best. But it's actually in the muddling along where the EU has proved its worth. And and the reason I say that is, you know, it's it's still a relatively new project, if you think right. about it. Yes, there was the European coal and steel community and all that back and forever ago. But like in sort of its modern form, especially with the euro, it's only really a couple decades old. It's going to take time. And it's survived these massive, almost existential crises. And it's found ways to grow and bring more member states in. And it's found ways to, you know, find um, compromises and like maybe not be as close as, it, as the original intention, but still find ways to keep people together and, and, and you know, and, and finding different areas in which to cooperate and which to sort of let go. It's why I, I, I will repeat a contention I made earlier, which is the EU continuously seems to be a, a supranational power that looks like, continuously looks like, is not, but looks like one state. And I think we will see that after this. And what the EU is going to learn from this, it's going to go, okay, you know, they're going to do an after action report, as they always do. And they're going to go, okay. <laughs> Governments love reports, what, man. Especially the Europeans. And they're going to go, okay, here's here's what we learned. Here's what we, you know, here's what we could have done better. And they're going to integrate this into their new policies and the ways they move forward. It is in the crises where you both rightly noted that, like, you learn a lot. But it's also in the crises where you realize, like, can this thing stay together? And it has. And if you're going to survive a global pandemic as a block, which it looks like it will, if you're, and then on top of that, the financial crisis and, and the refugee crisis, then this thing is here to stay. You will see the occasional Brexit. You will see the occasional issue. But the EU is just a thing now. The Europe is too integrated, in part because of its small size, in part just because of the politics of, the re of recent decades. And just what it is. I don't see a breakup happening anytime soon. I don't see a, a massive flare up that this pandemic brought along. If anything, it just continues to be despite all of its faults. And so that's a good and a bad thing. But overall, I think you're seeing the EU go, okay, we got some things wrong. We got some things right. They will eventually get this right. That's, that's what it does in a slow way because that's what it does. <laughs> um, but this is just the EU now. And uh, it's, it's its world and we're all living in it. I think that's a perfect place for us to close. Um, I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, who does uh, all the hard work making us sound a little bit smart. Uh, and also, two other things. One, uh, go check out the Vox Quick Hits feed if you haven't yet. We have our short supplementary episodes where we cover related but sometimes different ground from the main episode. So if you like this, can't get enough of Worldly, go, go check that out. It's on these various different podcast forums. Uh, and I also want to want to keep the emails coming. This episode was partly inspired by a question that a listener sent in about the EU vaccination campaign. Uh, so we're, we're reading them and we're putting them together into a big future episode, which we'll do down the line. So keep those questions coming to worldly at vox.com uh, if you have more email ideas. Uh, but otherwise, we'll just see you next week. Bye. Adieu.